Hello, Mountain. It's good to see everybody. Uh, welcome to you, especially we said it a couple times, but I just want to extend my welcome to you. If you're a guest at Mountain Boy, glad you're here. Thanks for joining in us today. Hey, I'm extremely blessed that I get to take this little summer break every year, and uh, it's become a really important part of the rhythm that kind of sustains me, keeps me in the game, I think, for the long haul. It was great, and it's really, I've been back, back for a few weeks, but I haven't seen you all, so... But uh, I got to go to Kansas City for the uh, North American Christian Convention, which was amazing. Did some presentations there and also just benefited and got inspired. And then um, did some speaking in California. Uh, you can follow that on social media. That was great and awesome. But quick, quickly as I could, I made my way to my favorite happy place, which is uh, the cabin in Minnesota, which you probably imagined, right? It's a great place for me to spend some time and uh, you know just get to goof off, hang out, and uh, rest and, and be with family. My mom and dad are there. And my brother and his family and cousins, and we got this whole compound of folk that hang out up there and just to rest and also just to to um, kind of get reconnected with my soul and with my God in a fresh way and listen and plan and prepare for the fall at Mountain and just see what God might have. It's just to really become an important uh, time uh, for us. And uh, uh, so anyway, I, I'm just, I'm glad to uh, be there. And I'm glad, I love it a lot, but I, I tell you what, um, I love coming home. I love coming home because you're here, and this church is going and blowing, and if I'm gone too long, people might think I don't have anything to do with it, so I got to get back, so they think that, <laughs> but I'm telling you, God is on the move here, and I, I, love, I love being there, but I love coming home, and uh, I tell you what, something good happens in me. I get filled up in a way, and I, I was reflecting. I feel like, I don't know if you know what I'm saying when I say this, but I think I, I, think I love my wife more. than when I left, I love my kids. I love you. I love people who don't know Jesus. I love this church more, and I am more excited than ever about diving in with everything I've got to, to, with the urgency for the mission we have. I hope you're with me on that, because I cannot wait to see what God's going to do. I think it's going to be amazing, even this fall. Are you with me? Okay, you're stuck with me. I'm back. So let me, let me tell you, um, let's just get right in and talk about off the beaten path, shall we? Off the beaten path. My son Andrew and a buddy of his are doing a cross-country trip like you can do when you're a young buck. They jumped in a pickup truck and they drove over to Bethany Beach, put their toe in the water, and then they drove all the way across. They put their toe in the water in San Francisco. I don't know where they are now. They're on their way back somewhere. But they're going so fast that they, they're just on interstates the whole time. You ever taken a trip like that? You were just on turnpike and interstate the whole time, right? You don't get to see anything except the big you know, sites that everybody else sees. But when you go off the beaten path, right, those, that, that's, that's when you get to some good stuff. You're hiking on a trail, and you take that little narrow one through the woods, and about the time you wonder if it was worth it at all, it opens up to this huge panorama of this vista of this overlook, and you're like, this is amazing, or there's a waterfall. I'm the only one who knows it's here. You got this gold mine. You say, I'm so glad I went off the beaten path, right? Or that little town out in the boonies that nobody knows about, but you like going there because it's like Mayberry, and there's this little lady on Main Street that runs a bakery, and she has these cinnamon rolls that are so incredible. You hope no one finds out about it because it's off the beaten path. That's how Habakkuk is for me. You're like, what? You got your backup? What? You got a pickup truck? A hiccup? What? Habakkuk. Everybody say Habakkuk. Habakkuk. It's a book in the Bible that's off the beaten path. It's, it's, a, it's a minor prophet, not minor because it's less important, minor because it's short. It's only 56 verses, and you won't see it if you stay on the turnpikes. You got to go past the big mall called Psalms and keep going right past Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and there it is, Habakkuk. 
short little book, but I love it, and I think you will too, and you'll be like saying, man, I'm so glad we went there today because it's so utterly practical. And I'll tell you what else. It's down to earth because it's talking to people who are hurting about how to hold on to God and find faith in difficult times. That's why I love this book. It's not got many fluffy platitudes in it. It's not got a a, a nice little, you know, um, sweet nothings in it. These are people in the 7th century B.C. who are getting the stuffings kicked out of them by a ruthless, oppressive government, the Babylonians. Sometimes your Bibles might say Chaldean, same thing. And they're the bad guys. They hate God and they hate God's people. And Habakkuk, on behalf of the people, is crying out to God to say, what gives? Is there no benefit in being a good guy? And it sure looks like the bad guys are, are winning. God, what are you up to? And there's this very lively dialogue. So can Habakkuk's first invitation to you today is, can we just get real and say, life's hard, where's God? Life's hard. How do I live with God doing during the tragedy that strikes, the suffering that hits, the hard time I'm going through, the circumstances in my life that feel like it's just pounding and pounding and pounding? It's like, I just need a break. How do you maintain faith through all of that? You know, I look at the prayer requests every week. We fill out those cards, and it's a litany of pain. I'm looking around the room. I see your faces. I know your stories. I lost my job. Pray for my marriage. They found a tumor the size of a golf ball this week. Pray for it. Might lose custody. My kid's overdosing. And just this week, our, our church family was rocked with the, the pain of the loss of one of our dear kids, 22-year-old Connor Porter, leaving behind an aching mother and father who are here at this service today. And a baby, a week old. And it, it just leaves you realizing what Warson Shire says is true. It's as if God holds an atlas of the whole world in his hand and his finger moves across every page of that map and he leans in and whispers, tell me, where does it hurt? And the answer comes back, everywhere. Everywhere, everyone. From the streets of Charlottesville where there's ignorance and fear and hate and anger marching in the streets and people getting run over today to our own burdened neighborhoods and the pain behind our closed doors. What Jesus said is true, John 16, In this world, you'll have trouble. And we're like, oh, you are not kidding. Now, I'm glad. I'm glad that Jesus is the kind of God. He's the only God you'll find who entered into the pain. He didn't just look at the menu of suffering. He tasted every item on it. He's the only God you'll find like that who had to enter into it so he could redeem it and fix it and he's putting the world to rights and one day there will be no more tears and crying but right now in this meantime, man, my goodness, while we're waiting for him to completely overcome the world, in the meantime, it's hard. How do you make sense when tragedy strikes? How do you deal with pain? How do you keep your faith while suffering is being rammed down your throat? What do you do when life hurts and circumstances are bad? Habakkuk has some help. Let's, let's talk about First thing I would say that we can learn from Habakkuk is this, that people of faith, you know what you do when life gets hard? You cry out to God. Everybody say that. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. It's okay. It's what we do. It's exactly what Habakkuk does. Chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. All this stuff's going on, and here's what he says. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? This sounds like a conversation with my wife and I. But he's talking to God that way. You cry out to God. 
Or I cry out to you, God, violence. Can you see what's happening? The bad guys are doing stuff, God, but you don't save. How long is this going to go on? Why do you make me look at injustice? This isn't fair. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Why aren't you intervening? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law, your good word, seems stuck, paralyzed. And justice doesn't seem to be prevailing. The wicked, him and the righteous, justice is perverted. Here's a guy who's crying out to God. It's not a polite little thing like, well, you know, be careful of your tone. Don't talk to God that way. No, he's just, he's saying, you know, life, life is hard right now, God. I'd appreciate help understanding you here. It's okay to scream and yell at God. He can handle it like a child running into daddy's belly with her face buried in his chest with her little arms pummeling his chest, crying out, daddy, help. Why didn't you daddy, daddy, daddy? And that's what you and I can do. To our Heavenly Father, who will embrace, you'll feel his embrace, and holding you close, you might feel some of his tears falling into your hair, because that God is the one we run to. We cry out to him. We cry to him. Even if you're angry, you cry to him, because God is a God who's with us, and he's for us. Isaiah 43 says, when the water is deep, I will be there. I'm with you. Where was God in 9-11 in those corridors? Where was God in eighth grade when my parents divorced? God was right there with you. And this is why even Jesus in his worst pain, when he's hanging on the cross, friends had left him, he's excruciating, he's bleeding out, cries to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And friends, if it's okay for Jesus and Habakkuk, to cry to God in a real, earthly, guttural way. It's okay for you to do it too. And I suggest it's the way that we start a real journey of faith sometimes. Pain draws us to God in a way that nothing else will. Cry to God. Second thing we see from Habakkuk is, is that his mind and perspective get changed by God's response. In the middle of his crying out, he remembers, he remembers that God is in control. No matter what it looks like, remember God is in control. God is in charge, even if it doesn't look like it. And God responds, see, to Habakkuk's stuff, and he says in verse 5, look at the nations and watch, God says. You're going to be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not even believe even if I told you. I love it when God talks that way. I'm raising, and then he surprises them. He didn't, isn't what he thinks. He says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless, impetuous people. God says, I'm going to use the thing that you think is most evil, and I'm going to do something that will blow your doors off. Yeah, I know you can't believe it today, but I'm going to draw, draw something good out of it. I'm going to accomplish my purpose. The Babylonians aren't in charge. I am, God says, and that's true in your life and mine. When things seem out of control, when the pain is great, when the situation seems so grim, when it seems like nothing will ever change, God says, I'm going to blow your mind. I'm still large. I'm still in charge. The word is sovereign. And he can figure out a way. If he can figure out a way to use a dirty, nasty, old, you know, idol-worshiping scumbag group of folk like the Babylonians to accomplish his will, he can figure out a way to use that job loss of yours or that back pain or that Alzheimer's in your family to somehow bring something. This is why we say Romans 8, 28 over and over and over and over again. We know that in all things, everybody say all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Remember, get your head on straight. God's in control. You may not see it. You may not feel it, but you know it. 
God's in control. You cry out to God, you get your brain on straight, God's in charge, it doesn't matter what it looks like, and then, most importantly, you cling to God. You hold on, you hold on, cling to God. Hold on and never let go. Don't let go. Hold on. Cling to God. Habakkuk 2. God says, I got a message for you. I want everyone to know it. I want you to write it down and take it and tell everyone. Verse 2, God says, here's my message. Write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. God's going to bring a good word, a healing, and a hope is what he's saying here, okay? For the revelation awaits an appointed time. God's always right on time, even if you don't know what that time is. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. God's going to come through. He'll do what he says he's going to do. But then this, though it linger, wait for it. Oh, anyone ever felt like God lingered a little too long? Wait for it, because it will certainly come and will not delay. When God seems to linger, you be a clinger. How about that one? Cling to God. I know it seems like you don't know where, and then it ends with this word, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. You've got to trust in God even when you can't see or, or feel or know what he's up to in ways that you can't see. We need people of faith who don't cave as soon as the battle of faith starts turning uphill. People of faith who aren't just like, well, I'm happy with God, praise his name because my kids are happy and I got money in the bank. But who, when life gets hard, say, I have a kind of, I don't care what's going on, I'm not letting go of God kind of faith. That's what faith looks like. You don't know what kind of faith you have until there's a storm. You don't know what your real living water is until you're really thirsty out in the desert. And that's what we need is a kind of, I don't care what happens. I don't care what kind of circumstances hit me. When that happens, I'm holding on to God and I'm not letting go because I believe he's not letting go of me. Okay, so cling to God. Cling to God. Habakkuk 3 shows us that. It says in verse 17, Listen to this. This guy's in a bad way. Some of you are like, you think you got it bad. I got it bad. Well, I'm sure you do. This guy's in a bad way too. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, there's no money, there's no food. Though the olive tree fails and fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pan, there's no cattle in the stalls. In other words, they have things, though, even though, even though, even though things are as terrible as I can ever imagine them being right now. The next verse is the key hinge point of your life. Verse 19, it says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God my Savior. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. I don't care how bad it gets, God is God. Life is hard, but Jesus is real. So you hold on and you cling with an I don't care what happens kind of faith. When the news comes, it says, I don't love you anymore. You hold on. When you bury your son on a Saturday, you come back to church on Sunday and you hold on. When you have to say goodbye to someone you love, when depression comes in like a blanket over your head and you can't breathe, when you're angry at God, whatever it is, you hold on. Because this is the way people of God, people of faith, they're not immune to suffering. In this world, you'll have trouble. But Jesus says, I've overcome the world. 
And so here's how we get through it. While we're waiting for one day, because one day is coming when everything gets put to rights. No more tears, sorrow, suffering. Until then, we cry out to God and we remember who's in control and we hold on to the one who's holding on to us. Now, there's nothing more powerful than when you see that lived out in a real, ordinary human life. Someone who's gone through some stuff. And we see that all the time at Mountain. But I brought a friend in this weekend because I wanted him to share some of this story. Roger and Nancy Storms are dear friends of Carla's and mine. They come all the way from Chandler, Arizona to be with us this weekend. Uh, they, um, they met a long time ago, back in the day, shall we say. They've been married 42 years. They went to a little, they're from Indiana. They went to college in, uh, at Ozark Christian College in Missouri. They've been in ministry. He's been a pastor all this time. And uh, she's, uh, Nancy's real involved in teaching kids ministry. And Roger, he's a pastor, he's a preacher, he's a teacher. And I uh, love this guy. And I can tell you all about the church they've been at for the last 29 years. They built it. For, when it was there, there was 100 people. Now there's like 2,500 people. I, but the thing I love about Roger is he's a pastor's pastor. He, he loves on me. He's like, how can I pray for you, Ben? And whenever I make a presentation somewhere, he's like, that was great. Love you, brother. And he's got a big old heart. And uh, I really appreciate him. And I'm... I'm also interested to tell you that uh, in May, after 29 years at this last church, he's retired. So he's got nothing better to do than come and hang out with you and his five grandkids. Will you give a big warm welcome to my dear friend, Roger Storms? All right, Roger. (laughs) Roger, Roger, Roger. Um, Thanks for coming all the way, you and Nancy, from Arizona. And uh, when we talk about Habakkuk, you know, this stuff about, you know, bad things happening even in good people's lives and I guess, you know, or in anyone's life, um, this isn't just words on a page. This is, this is uh, real. You guys have lived some of this. So thank you for coming, and would you share some of that story? Certainly. And thank you, Ben, for inviting me. And Mountain, it's so great to be with you all uh, this weekend. My wife and I have enjoyed the hospitality. We love Ben and Carl. I know you do, too. And it's great to be here today. But you're right. Uh, some of the things that Habakkuk talked about are things that we've literally lived out in our lives. On November 6, 1981, on my birthday, um, uh, we and my wife gave birth to our son, Jeremy. And I remember calling my dad and saying, Dad, I got a son, got a boy. And I was so happy and so proud and had all these dreams of teaching him how to play ball and, and teaching him the faith. And maybe someday he'd be a preacher. And, and um, those were my hopes. Everybody has those hopes and dreams for their children. But Jeremy was diagnosed and tested with a, a genetic disorder, bleeding disorder called hemophilia, classic hemophilia. It was in Nancy's family history but we were told by a genetics counselor before we had children that we had only an 80, we had an 85% chance of having no, no effect in our family. Mm-hmm. I guess they were wrong. Yeah, they were wrong. Um, so hemophilia is not always understood. Yeah, hemophilia doesn't really, it doesn't cause your body to bleed. It messes with your body's ability to clot a bleed. It doesn't right. let it form up a clot. And the bleeding is not external. It's really internal. Um, bleeding into joints, bruises, um, those things are painful as they swell and you treat them with ice, but a bleed in the torso or bleed in the, in the head or concussion uh, can be terminal. Sure. And so those you treat, and the treatment at, at that time still today is a starting IV. Thankfully now it's not through human blood plasma, but in Jeremy's day, the only treatment was to go to the hospital and start an IV with a, a form of a human blood plasma, derived from human blood plasma. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we did. It took a lot of time uh, to do so. Uh, there were many hours spent at the hospital. He was such a good kid. 
And you see some pictures here. He was such a handsome little boy, but he was a typical boy. And uh, some of you can imagine, uh, if you had toddlers, how they bump and fall and bang. And, and uh, he did all those things. And every time it happened, we'd have to scrutinize and keep careful watch and, mm-hmm. and see if it developed into a bleed in the joint. Soft tissue we'd treat with ice and pressure. A joint we'd have to oftentimes um, take him to the hospital. But anything that was cranial... Uh, we'd have to take him to the hospital as soon as possible mm-hmm. to get him started. And um, uh, it was, uh, sometimes it would take hours, uh, yeah. but that was our life. Yeah. So what a challenging uh, few years. So here you are, a young couple with this uh, situation you're now all dealing with. Huh? How did you deal with that with your faith then? What were your responses? Well, we uh, we began to pray a lot. And we prayed uh, for uh, miraculous healing. Uh, Nancy, my wife, bless her heart, has this very tender, soft uh, faith. And she just knew that God would take care of us and God would be there for us. And she just trusted God explicitly. Uh, I, on the other hand, struggled with it. I, um, God and I had some real long arguments. He always won. Uh, and I learned that God had very broad shoulders. Um, but we had some kind of knockdown dragouts about it. And every day, I, my prayers went into overdrive. Every day I prayed, every morning I prayed, and almost every evening I prayed Psalm 91 over uh, my son, our son Jeremy. Psalm 91 says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare, from his deadly pestilence. His faithfulness will be your shield. You will not uh, walk in the fear of the terror of the night, nor the pestilence that stalks, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, but it will not come near you. And I prayed that prayer every morning and almost every night. And God seemed to remain silent uh, to my prayer. It was difficult. And like Habakkuk, I felt very much the same. I mean, he prayed for God to intervene, to help, to do something, but it was like God wasn't listening to him, or dare I say, maybe God just didn't care. And um, like Habakkuk, who says he was hurting and broken and angry at God, he said, how long, O Lord, must I call for your help, but you do not listen, Mm -hmm. cry out to you, and you do not Mm -hmm. save. So you lived there. I did. Um, And then things got worse. I trusted God. I knew he could heal, but would he heal? That was the question. And yes, we, things got worse. We received a letter uh, after an annual checkup that Jeremy indeed tested positive for HIV and was an innocent victim of AIDS. It was only a matter of time, we knew, until his immunity would be zero and um, a, an opportunistic infection would occur and ultimately prove fatal for him. So at age 10, Jeremy became very, very sick. He was diagnosed with a fungal infection uh, known as valley fever in the southwest, a coccidial infection. Very common, very treatable, uh, but not if your immunity is zero. And so we knew it was just a matter of time. Jeremy endured many, many hospital visits and long stays and much pain and much suffering. Tests that we could describe, but we had no idea how he would handle them. Lots of hospital stays until he passed from this life to his eternal life on December 7th, 1996. One month and one day past his 15th birthday. Mm -hmm. So 
born on your birthday. He died on mine, uh, and that uh, was 20 years ago now. <laughs> so he would have been 35. Yeah. Uh, you've had, you and Nancy, a good long while to kind of process, think about all this, reflect on it. What are some of the ways that now, at this perspective, you can see that God is at work through this trial? Well, just as in the days of Habakkuk, God used the enemy for his purpose. Uh, for uh, for Habakkuk and Judah, it was the terror of Babylon. For us and our son, it was the terror of HIV/AIDS. But even so, God used this terrible uh, thing and times for His glory, and we ultimately trusted Him in it. And so we stood then, we stand now, Mountain. We stand today with you, recognizing clearly what God can do, even through the most difficult times. At the time of Jeremy's diagnosis, our church was growing. And I had to tell the elders of our congregation of the diagnosis. These were back in the days when people didn't understand AIDS and HIV, and, and I treated it very much like leprosy. Some of you might remember there was a family in Indiana that had a boy that was hemophiliac, and they forced the family to move out of town. In Florida, there was a boy that was born and had hemophilia and developed HIV. They burned, literally burned the house to force them out. So people had a lot of trauma back then, and more understanding today. So I went to the elders and I offered my resignation. The last thing I wanted to do is to hurt the church. And they flatly refused to accept my resignation, pledged to stand with us, as did the church. And God blessed us in amazing ways. We, it meant basically functionally for uh, about five years, I kind of really worked part-time. And because of lengthy stays, my wife and I would have when our son was in the hospital and also taking care of our daughter. Um, but the congregation prayed for us and supported us and picked up the slack. And even during that time, our church continued to grow in amazing ways. At one point, um, towards the end of his life, when hospice was involved, our doctor served as the medical director for hospice for the pediatrics. And um, the nurses came to him, the hospice nurses, and complained. They said, uh, you know, we would go out to take care of the storm's needs, and when we'd get there, we'd find out that somebody from their church, a nurse or somebody, had already been there, and they'd bathed their son, and they'd changed the IV tubings for their son, and they'd uh, rolled him because he was bed fast, and uh, they'd done all the things we're supposed to do. We don't know what to do to help the storms. And uh, our doctor, who was a Jewish man, by the way, uh, told the nurses, oh, don't worry about it. With the storm's church, they have more hospice than hospice. When Jeremy was 80, he proclaimed his faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized into him. And we observed the Holy Spirit empowering our son in amazing ways. Then one day, during the course of Jeremy's illness, he was so nauseous um, that he just laid on the bathroom floor. The cool tile gave him some relief. And when a wave of nauseousness would come over him, he would rise up and grab hold of the side of the toilet bowl, and I'd watch him every muscle tense as he would retch and try to throw it, but nothing was there. And he would do so again and again until finally the wave would pass, and he would simply lay back down on the floor. And at one point after one of those times, he looked back at his mom and said, Mom, I don't know how anybody who didn't know Jesus could get through this. One night after a particularly rough day, Jeremy was dealing with a lot of pain, couldn't sleep. And so he sat on my lap. He was always small because of his illness. And we watched an old MASH television program. How many of you remember the MASH show on TV? And this particular episode, that Dr. Hawkeye Pierce was working on a patient whose heart stopped. And he, he cried out and said, uh, uh, don't let the bastard win. Can you say bastard here? 
Apparently. Apparently. <laughs> and um, on the show, there was a, an observer, and they said to one of the other doctors, what does he mean by that? And uh, the other doctor said, well, to, to uh, Hawkeye, death is the bastard, and he doesn't want that bastard to win. So after the show was over, our son was in so much pain, I was rocking him in the chair. And I said, Jeremy, I know what Satan's trying to do here. He's allowed this disease to come on you because he wants to shake my faith, your faith. He wants to separate us from God. That's his plan. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to let that bastard Satan win. And Jeremy said, I'm not either, Dad. Well, the next morning, Jeremy got up before I did and promptly went into the kitchen where his mother was and said, Hey, Mom, I'm not going to let that bastard Satan win. Hmm. How'd that go over? Yeah, he kind of threw me under the bus, you know? <laughs> he was 11, 12. My wife said, What are you doing teaching Arslan that kind of language? Yeah. She might have been missing the point a little maybe, there, but uh, you know, I love that because I think when we're in pain, it's so easy, isn't it, to to forget who the real enemy is. Absolutely. And I and as pastors, we've seen so many people um, instead of just crying out to God, they turn against Him right. and assume somehow He's causing or failing them. And uh, and and that's that's Satan's mo. And that's Satan's plan. Yeah, yeah, his mo is to cause pain and destruction and death. And Jesus said, "My mo, my plan is to give life." life abundantly. Right. And that's what he did. Now, please understand, and I'm not saying any of this was easy. Jeremy dealt with countless hospital stays as a little boy, tests that, you know, I could just had to ask him to trust us. Um, pain that was beyond anything I can imagine, suffering, and the reality that he was going to die from age 10 until he passed away. He knew every day he was going to die four times in his life. I had to go to him and say, Jeremy, the doctors tell us you're not sure you're going to live another day. You need to think about the last things you want to say to your family and your friends. I had to do it at 10. I had to do it at 11. I had to do it at 14 twice. Things that no father should ever have to say to their son. Mm-hmm. But God was there for him. He was there for us. And mountain God will be there for you. I saw him in our son's life give him strength through the Holy Spirit. We felt his strength through the Holy Spirit. And I mm-hmm. testify to you today that just like Habakkuk says, there's a revelation and to carry it out and spread it. There is life. And the one who's in charge of it is God. Just trust him. Mm-hmm. And he did the same for our son. He did the same for us. And I know that he would do the same for you. Towards the very end of his life, his mother was praying with him at night before bed. And she prayed as usual for God to heal him. And when she finished her prayer, Jeremy placed his hand on top of hers and said, I hope it's okay, Mom. But I'm not praying that way anymore. My prayer is different than yours. Mm. He knew where his hope was. Yeah. We had a woman here at Mountain, a Christian woman who had cancer, and she said, I'm praying for healing. Now, I don't know if he'll heal me in this life or when I'm in heaven, but either way, I'm going to trust him to heal me. And and that's where he was. That's right. Just about a week before Jeremy passed away, he was kind of in and out of coma. The disease had caused his eyes to weaken. Sometimes he couldn't see. They would glass over. He was so weak, he could only answer with one-word sentences. 
So I picked him up and carried him from the living room where he was to his bed. And as I was leaving his bedroom, I turned around and I saw him looking at me. And I said, Jeremy, how you doing? And he said, weekly, fine. So I said, I'm not talking about up here, Jeremy. I'm talking about down here. And friends, I tell you today, because I remember so clearly that those blue eyes that you see on the screen lit up like I hadn't seen in weeks. And his voice spoke with a strength I hadn't heard in weeks. And he said to me, I'm not afraid, Dad. And those were the last words that he ever spoke. And 10 days later, he received his glory in heaven. Habakkuk said, look and watch and be utterly amazed. Because I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Mm. And he did it in our son. Right. The righteous live by faith, and they also sometimes show us how to die by yep. faith. Amen. And that's what he did. There's so much to learn from Jeremy's life. Um, as time has passed, God has done some amazing things, right? So what are some of the lessons that we can all learn from that? Well, uh, Habakkuk says that the enemy's puffed up, but the righteous will live by his faith. And Jeremy just trusted God. He lived by faith. I'm sure there were moments of spiritual and emotional struggle. I knew there were. I could tell you those stories, but we all had our moments. But Jerry, Jeremy's faith and the Holy Spirit-driven life just lifted us all and helped us move forward. I've had the privilege of sharing Jeremy's story literally around this world. Um, it's amazing to me that in Africa and in India, when I share some of this story with people, they just think, well, that can't happen to a Christian in America. Those diseases don't happen to Christians there, do they? And mm. So when I tell the story, it's immediately how people make connection with us and realize sure. that pain and suffering is that one thing that is universal, as is the love of God. And I've never had this chance of telling his story in Antarctica. I never intend to. Okay. I've prayed and preached on every continent except Antarctica and Australia. Plan to go there sometime in retirement. But I have some friends who pastor there, and one friend of mine asked me if he could tell Jeremy's story. He was going to be doing a, a sermon on when bad things happen to good people or God's people. And uh, he asked me to tell Jeremy's story. So I wrote him several of these stories and many others. And he took them, when he received them, he took them to his wife. He said, I read this, I just wept through it. He read it to her, she wept through it. She said, there's your sermon. So that week he put on the marquee of his church uh, when bad things happened to God's people. And uh, unbeknownst to him, there was a woman in town who had lost a son in illness. And she had grown very bitter towards God. And she saw the marquee and came to church that day. He said, when I preached, I basically just read your stories. And he said, at the end of me telling the stories that you say about Jeremy, when we offered an invitation, she stepped out from where she was seated in the back of the room and literally ran down to the altar mm. and gave her heart to Jesus mm. as Savior and Lord. You allow me one more story? Mm -hmm. um, about a year before Jeremy died, December of uh, 1995, the doctor said that he didn't think Jeremy would live through that Christmas, um, but he did. And um, I was in bed one night and my wife came in to the bedroom and she was crying and I said what's wrong and she said Jeremy and I said is he okay and she said yes he's okay he just asked me if he was old enough to write a will he was 14 
And I said, what'd you tell him? Uh, please understand, folks, when you go through this kind of a situation with long-term illness, we were broke. We'd used every penny that we had to take care and provide for that stuff. And, and uh, so I said, what'd you say? And she said, I told him he could. And so she still has the list. He wanted to help his sister go to college and give money to a little girl he considered his little sister, money for the National uh, Institute of Health Children's House here at Bethesda, to him if he a summer camp, our church building program, because he was a preacher's kid. He had all these things that he won. And she's reading this list, and my gift of mercy comes out, and I start to chuckle. And I said, where does he think he's going to get this money? And uh, she said, oh, you know, Jeremy, he just trusts God. Well, fast forward a year. He died in December. In September of that next year, we ran out of medical insurance for him. We popped over our cap. And during that period of two and a half months, we acquired $60,000 worth of medical bills. He had a cranial surgery, all the meds that go with all of that, hospital stay. And we had no money, so we had $60,000 worth of debt. And my wife Nancy said, what are we going to do? And I said, we'll just pay what we can as long as we can. They'll have to be satisfied with that or there's an alternative. Well, a lot of our brother and sister churches found out about it. Our Bible colleges found out about it. A number of them took love gifts, love offerings to help us out. And so we had $60,000 worth of debt, and I'd applied for every benefit everywhere, was denied because I had a job. But with the love gifts that came in, we had $60,000 worth of debt, and we received $25,000 worth of gifts from God's people to help pay that off. And uh, my brother-in-law was attorney, and he said, we don't pay anything off until we negotiate it down. So while we were waiting just about uh, 10 days, I received a phone call from the social worker at Children's Hospital, and she said, Mr. Storms, have you applied for such and such to Arizona long-term health care? And I said, yes, we have, but we were denied because I have a job. Some of you know that story. And she said, if I faxed you the form, would you fill it out again and send it back to me? This was on a Monday. So the next day she faxed us a form, and I did what every other husband here does with those kind of forms. I gave it to my wife and said, here, fill this out. <clears throat> she filled it out. We faxed it back that evening. This is on Tuesday night. On Friday of that same week, now this is the government, but on Friday of that week, we received a phone call from the Arizona, Arizona Long-Term Health Care Program. And they said because Jeremy was under the age of 18 and had no physical property, that he fell into a little unknown area of Arizona Long-Term Health Care. And that all of Jeremy's medical providers had to accept what the state paid them as payment in full. So we went from $60,000 worth of debt and no money to pay for it to $60,000 worth of debt and $25,000 in the bank through God's people to zero debt and $25,000 in the bank that we then used to give to everything that Jeremy had listed in his will. We set aside some of those funds to start a Jeremy Storms Memorial Scholarship Fund. We've helped over 20 kids go to Christian college. And there are four or five kids today that are in vocational ministry as a result of his life and his testimony. God said, don't give up, hang on, trust me. The enemy's puffed up. His desire is not upright but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Mm. 
and that wins. And that's our son's story. Thank you for letting me share. Amen. Let's show our appreciation to Roger. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. We just want to create an opportunity now at all of our campuses. If you're not already standing, I'm going to ask you to stand. We want to create some space. Sorry. This seems like a really important moment for all of us to simply come before God in a transparent way with whatever pain, hurt, sorrow, struggle, and allow him to meet us in that pain. And so we have prayer times every single weekend, but we're going to do a little different today, and God's going to move in a little bit more open way today. I'm going to ask those who are going to be praying people, our our friends up front, to come on right now. They'll take your place right here. I just believe in a room this size at all of our campuses, there's some people that are like, I'm going through a struggle, and I, I I would love to have someone pray for me. I'd love to have someone pray for someone that I care about that's hurting. So if that's you, I'm just going to ask you, when we sing this song, uh, you may stay right where you are, but I would encourage you, step out of your seat, step on some toes, whatever you need to do. Come on up front and let us just simply ask the same God that we've been praising here for the last hour or so to to bless and heal and deliver and to be with you. So as we sing this song, I invite you to, to, to come and do that. Maybe you need to, Maybe you need to come forward and just say, God, I'm hurting and I need a special touch from God. Maybe you just need to stop being angry at God and let go of it because he didn't come through in a way you wish he would have, and maybe it was even years ago that you're ready to turn to God today. Maybe you're ready to stop running from God and you want to just surrender to him as Lord. I don't, I don't know. But there are a few moments and opportunities in our, in our lives and at our worship at Mountain where we just open the door for God to do a special thing. And if that's you today, step out. We're going to sing words to this song, Blessed Be the name of the Lord. And, and I love it because it's a Habakkuk song. I, I don't care if things are going great. I'm going to praise the Lord. If things are going bad, I'm so, yet I will say, blessed be your name. Find a way to praise the Lord today and come forward for prayer and encouragement if you would like that. God, hear our prayers and receive our worship. Through tears and smiles and everything in between, we are your people and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.